So if you have the gift of hospitality and you want to exercise it here for the body, that would be a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. A um, couple of things I would just give you as informational. This, um, it's interesting how things kind of, you know, pan out over time, but um, May 7th, which is coming up, uh, that'll be Saturday, next Saturday, um, about, well, almost all day, there's going to be a walk through creation. It's going to be put on by the Logos Research Associates, um, and it, they are a tremendous organization. They're probably one of the premier uh, defenders of the Christian faith with regard to creation and debunking evolution here on the West Coast. And um, Dave Coppage is going to be uh, heading that up. It's going to be broadcast from Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. So I'm going to give you a web address. Um, you can just go to calvarychapel.com uh, between 10 and 6 p.m. this next Saturday, uh, not as in a couple of days from now, but as in a week and a bit from now. Um, and you can just log on to the live Internet streaming. Um, you can also go on the web at uh, crev.org, um, and uh, they'll, they'll pick you up there as well. But it should be a great time in the Word um, for those of you who have uh, a desire for things scientific. Your mind will be filled. Your brains will be blown. Um, and evolution will once again look really, really, really dumb. So, uh, at least as a matter of cosmology, in other words, how we got here. So, um, I encourage you to tune in. We will probably get a set of the DVDs here as well uh, for viewing later, um, but should be a great, great, great time. I got, uh, this is actually kind of both sad and wonderful all at the same time. You know, most of us know that we've been fighting now a nearly two, two year long legal battle. Um, to keep the will of the people with uh, Proposition 8 in force. Uh, if you remember, uh, Judge uh, Vaughn Walker uh, ruled in the case Perry versus Brown uh, that they would reverse the will of the people based on that case, that it was actually discriminatory and that the law that was passed by you, the people of California, was in fact unconstitutional. Well, one of the things that he did not disclose, which he by law needed to disclose, was he himself was a homosexual. And he was in a long-term relationship with another man, and he very much wanted to get married. So a petition was filed three days ago to have that case thrown out of court. He should have recused himself uh, from that judgment. And I want to encourage you to, to pray for the legal defense team, which consists of the guys from protectmarriage.com, along with Pacific Justice Institute, uh, the American Center for Law and Justice are all basically involved in this case. Uh, and it does appear that it's going to be thrown out, So, uh, which means our current governor, who was attorney general at the time, didn't defend the will of the people. Uh, it looks like uh, Judge Walker's decision uh, will be thrown out. And so it was deemed on, uh, he was deemed actually in contempt of court. And so... Uh, we'll see what happens, but pray. God's people are still praying, and the Lord is still at work in that particular decision. And of course, uh, we believe that God's word clearly defines marriage as between a man and a woman, uh, not to deny anybody civil rights, which we've said many times from this pulpit that everyone is guaranteed those civil rights by our Constitution, but not everyone is guaranteed to uh, the right to marry because that was defined by God. So in order to be married, you need to do it God's way. And so...
praise the Lord. Amen? If you'd turn in your Bibles tonight, we'll finish up Acts chapter 25 and then move on to chapter 26. So we'll be picking up in Acts 25-23. As I shared with you three, uh, two studies ago, these three guys, Felix, Festus, and now King Agrippa, uh, really represent a cross-section of humanity to a very large degree with regard to how people receive, in essence, uh, a message of the gospel. And now we're moving up the scale. We've started out with a regional ruler and then to a governor in Festus. And so as they passed those things down, there was two year, a two-year lag time. Uh, Festus has now said, I'm not getting through to him, so he's going to turn it over to King Agrippa. I would remind you that King Agrippa is a not a nationalized Jew. In other words, he was not born a Jew, but he's a Jew by religious choice. He was proselytized, became a Jew, a practicing Jew. And so he's a Jewish king, in essence, in the region of Palestine. And so he is a regional ruler that's actually above Festus to a large degree. And so it's kind of moved up. And then, of course, the next place that Paul's going to go is he's going to get that trip that God promised to Rome, and he's, he's going to actually go to Rome. But now we see him moving up this ladder. And I think it's important because you guys are going to run into this. You're going to have conversations with your own children. And your own children are going to question, well, you know, why do you really believe that? Uh, you're going to have it with your own family members beyond that. You're going to have it with people in your community. You're going to have it in the workplace. You're going to have it in government. We have it in the national political square now. Who is this Jesus? What does he represent? And so this is a picture, if you will, of kind of our struggles as Paul goes through them. And it's a, a picture of the human heart and how people receive these things. Because we're now going to find somebody who is very, very, very intelligent, who has a keen grasp of Jewish law, understands Jewish scripture from a Jewish perspective. And so prior to this, Paul has kind of been speaking to a more, um, if you will, antagonistic couple of guys. Now he's going to speak to somebody who's relatively sympathetic, who understands what the Old Testament says from a Jewish perspective. And so he's got a little bit of a softer heart. But I want you to notice that even having information doesn't necessarily cause you to believe. That you can have all kinds of things going on in your head that are factually correct, but it won't necessarily make you believe, because believing comes by faith. And faith comes by the hearing of God's word. So, so we have these things linked together with, that we see in a New Testament context is that you can have all the arguments in the world, but if someone's trying to just simply believe on an intellectual basis, rarely does it work. I've had some monumental battles, especially with evolutionists. Uh, I, I had an over-year-long discourse with a, a doctor from... Uh, New York University Medical Hospital, and we went back and forth with regard to all kind, everything down to cellular biology. I mean, we were talking about crazy stuff. But he never professed faith in Christ. And one argument after another, I showed him how it was absolutely implausible that the things that he was taught in medical school could result in what he believed they resulted in, that human life somehow... Uh, came about through random chance processes over billions of years. Chemicals all of a sudden stored information. That information became systems. Those systems became greater and greater. And each one of them somehow came together in one place at one time in an environment that was hostile to life. And he said, well, I still have to believe that. Otherwise, what he said was, I would have no, no other choice but to believe in God. 
And that was the point. The information was there, but it did not cause his heart to change. That's kind of the picture we get in this passage tonight. And I pray that the Lord would help us with our witness in this world, that we'd be bold, that we'd stand up for what we truly believe in. I think it's going to get tougher and tougher, quite frankly. I don't think it's going to be as easy to be a Christian as it has been for the last maybe 50, 60 years. I do believe it will get harder. But it also has more at stake than ever before. We can either lie down and let the world trample over the gospel and consequently who knows how many billions will be lost at the end, or we can stand up and win people to Christ. And I believe that is what the Lord has called us to do, and I pray that we would have that kind of boldness. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, as we again turn our attention to the details of your word, as we study it, Lord, in hopes that your word would transform our lives, Lord, that we would gain boldness, that we'd remember who this man is that's preaching, his, this great apostle Paul, uh, standing in the, the council chambers of a man who can sentence him to death, and not being afraid of that death, but rather clinging to that eternal life that he already knows he has. May we have that kind of boldness. As we study your word, Lord, would you impart it to us? Help us to remember it, Lord, that, that your word would be transformed into actions in our world. We bless you. We thank you for this time tonight. We pray now that you would help us to receive what your spirit would say to us. We ask these things in the blessed name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Verse 23 here in Acts 25. And so the next day, so now we went from a two-year lag time from Felix to Festus. Festus has his uh, day in the sun, if you will, with the Apostle Paul. It goes basically nowhere. Uh, he doesn't receive the Lord. So the next day, but when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders in the prominent men of the city. And so here's this very interesting scene. Now, King Agrippa comes. He's a regional ruler. He's a step above Festus. He has the ability to write the papers necessary to send on to Emperor Nero uh, to really make Paul's life much easier, perhaps even let him go. And in fact, we're going to find out that that's actually his wish, that there's nothing there to convict the Apostle Paul. And what's being said here, it's interesting, the choice of words, because uh, with great pomp would be the equivalent of saying it was a whole bunch like Disneyland. It was fake to the max. Um, pomp is actually the Greek word fantasia, uh, from which we get our word fantasy. And so there's a whole bunch of things that were thrown out there uh, that really didn't have a whole lot to do with reality, but it was more for show. And so... Didn't work with Paul and Felix, doesn't work with Paul and Festus, and so now they appeal, in essence, to a higher court, and King Agrippa comes in, and he's surrounded by these men who are called commanders here. Uh, the word, again, that's translated commanders means these guys were in charge of a cohort, a thousand men. Each one of them was a, com uh, these were like generals. So you have King Agrippa, you got a bunch of generals, and you have prominent men of the city. This is like as good as it gets. This is an audience, in essence, really with the king. And so Paul's got this audience of very influential people. Now I want you to notice something. We find out nothing about what really happens to most of these men. 
We, we don't know whether they ever received Christ or not. But you talk about God using all things working together for the good, for those who love God and have been called according to his, his purposes. How else do you get an audience with a group like this other than to be in trouble for a long period of time? So Now, I'm not encouraging you to go get in trouble with the law so you can you know, preach Christ in, in the Supreme Court or something. That's not what I'm saying. But I want you to see how God is using something that looks terrible, it's horrible. Paul's going to be in prison. He's eventually going to lose his life. But God's using it to reach these very influential people. He's going to speak to a king. He's going to speak to his counselors. He's going to speak to generals in the military. And, and all of these people are going to get the message that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. Because Paul's in trouble. You and I wouldn't pick it that way. You would hope that you know you could just go out and invite King Agrippa to an evangelistic meeting. You know, you kind of give them a tract and say, have you, you know, have you read the four spiritual laws or something like that? You wouldn't pick to do it this way. There's a reason that God does it this way, because King Agrippa wouldn't have heard it any other way. He's a Jew, and he's a leader in the community. He's a leader in the world at that time, and he has no room for these things apart from it happening this way. And so God, in his marvelous plan, works these things together for good. So here, with the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And so Festus himself doesn't have much, so Paul comes in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man whom the whole assembly of Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. You, you talk about building up a case that's already been proven twice to not be true, and now he's going to spew the same garbage again in front of a bunch of other very influential people, and yet we're going to find out that it still doesn't fly, because remember, and the Lord stood by Paul. That was that beautiful verse from chapter 24, and the Lord stood by Paul. Paul was going to go where God wanted him to go. And no amount of Felix's or Festus's or Uncle Fester's or whoever are, were going to change that. God had a plan. And he makes this incredible oratory opening remark that this man, you know, we've been petitioned in both in Jerusalem and here he's a troublemaker and everybody thinks he ought to die. But when I found out that he had committed nothing, nothing deserving death, so he's, he's distancing himself from all these other guys. But he's reminded, well, there's a real case against him, you know, but not me. When I found out that he had committed nothing deserving of death, that he had himself appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Now, is that even true? The answer is it's not true. He had actually come to a conclusion already that Paul was innocent. He, he could have actually defended him. He says basically we didn't find anything that was wrong, but he doesn't come to his defense either. He's leaving the door open. And therefore I've brought him out before you, especially before you, King Agrippa. You can kind of see how he's just kowtowing to the ruler. So that after the examination has, take, has taken place, I might have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. 
So he, he's making the case, I haven't heard anything, but we're going to do this thing all the way to the end. We're going to compile as much evidence as we can. He's implying in this last statement that he, he's actually looking for something with which to hang him, but he doesn't have it yet. So he's hoping, in essence, that King Agrippa is going to come up with something that's worthy of Paul's death sentence, if you, if you will. And so the next day, it, it says here, these, these guys all come in in pomp and circumstance and, uh, you know, just everything going on. But I want you to notice how God actually sees this. God sees this problem as an opportunity. How many things do we miss in life where God might use us because we fail to see the opportunity in something that looks like it's not good? I can absolutely tell you as a pastor, a vast majority of the things that I deal with that are opportunities for me to share the Lord are things that are difficult. They're hard. They're problems. There are people's lives falling apart. There are people's kids going sideways. There are financial problems. All of those things, to a certain extent, when you look at them, their basic connotation is negative. But it's really what we do with them that determines what value they have in the kingdom. Do you look at problems as opportunities for the Lord to work? It's kind of like what we're going through. I mean, so many people struggling right now. Just the unemployment, the junk that we're going through with the economy, the things that we have going on in our nation right now, uh, the the crazy insanity of, of what's being said and done in Washington and in our state house. Uh, it's mind-boggling. The prospects of 5 to $10 a gallon gasoline, people are like, I'll walk, I'll ride a bike. And, and you know, we, some of us are, you know, we travel 80 miles one way to get to work. You see, that is an opportunity for God to work. It's an opportunity for God to do something beyond the ordinary. You see, I think we miss the extraordinary because we fail to see God in the ordinary. We don't look at God working in these circumstances that are, uh, quite frankly, make up a, a lot of our lives. I don't know about you, but I, you know it's very rare that I have 50 people come to me in one day and, you know, well, I, I just, you know, I want to give you a thousand dollars. It just hasn't happened that many times. You know, I just would really like to give you a couple of new cars today, and, I, you know, I saw your house and it kind of needs some painting, so we're just going to give you a house. No, but I do get the people that come and, you know, my life's falling apart and my wife's life is falling apart and her friend's family's kids are falling apart and we don't know what we're going to do. You see, if they came and just did all kinds of nice, wonderful things to me, with me, for me, I would not really have an opportunity to minister. I mean, what is there to minister when somebody's handing you you know, $1,000 in cash or giving you a new car or, you know, oh, bless you, you're just so nice. And those things are wonderful, don't get me wrong. But they don't provide an, a lot of opportunity for ministry. But negative things do. Problems do. Take advantage of those things that God allows in your life that are negative and see them as opportunities, in essence, in disguise, in negative circumstance. Uh, that, you know, that neighbor who's got the barking dog. Sure, you could have the response of going out there and throwing a piece of meat laden with some bad substance in there. So maybe it's an opportunity to talk to your, talk to your neighbor. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to let them know 
you know what, I need to take care of that because as, as a citizen, as your neighbor, I, I should be doing something about my crazy dog. Not that my dog does that, except at 5 o'clock in the morning. Look for opportunities in the things that are negative in your life because they're there. Festus is a Roman governor in charge of the court, and Caesarea opens the proceedings. And uh, I believe, in essence, Luke includes this exoneration, if you will, uh, of the Christian faith, because that's really what he's doing. I don't know what to tell you. We haven't found anything that's wrong. So on one hand, he says there's nothing wrong. On the other hand, I hope there is. That's kind of the way the world looks at Christianity. It's, not, it's, not, it's very hard to actually find fault with true biblical Christianity lived out in somebody's life, isn't it? What are you going to do? Oh, he was too, you know, that guy over there, he was too loving to me. You know, he was kind and generous and he was thinking of others. I just hate that when that happens. There's nothing really that you can say bad about a life lived for Christ. So it's never the actual life lived for Christ that becomes the the object of the complaint. It's always something aberrant to that. Someone will step up and say, well, you know, yeah, they live like a Christian, but, you know, I just don't agree with them. And that's what this is. You can't find fault with Paul. This is a guy who used to murder people that no longer murders people. That's pretty good, actually, in most people's book. And so... Here, basically, Paul's exonerated. He says, I have nothing to write. He goes on to explain that uh, he was at a loss. He he calls him there in uh, verse 26, our sovereign. He was at a loss. What are you going to do? What kind of legal brief are you going to write about a guy whose life is now given over to serving others, taking up a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem? Well, you know, I think we should kill everyone who's a philanthropist. It doesn't make any sense. And that so often is the argument against Christianity. There really isn't an argument, but we're going to make one up. You know, it's those narrow-minded, bigoted Christians. You know, I, I haven't seen any Christian suicide bombers. And yet we get compared to suicide bombers every day in the media, don't we? Well, Christians are just the same. And the first thing they throw, remember the Crusades. The Crusades were not done under the guise of real Christianity. The Crusades were a bunch of nutbag kings from England who decided that they could force Christianity on people and thereby save them from spending a lot more time in purgatory. That's all it was. Didn't have anything to do with Jesus. No, Jesus in nowhere did he ask anyone, go kill them if they don't believe. But Muhammad did. Plainly stated. If you find them behind every rock or tree, them being Gentiles or Jews that don't believe in Allah, kill them. That's his word. So it's never about the substance of Christianity. It's about the peripheral issues that people have. You know, well, I just, it's just too narrow. Paul had led an exemplary life. He was examined. He had broken no civil laws. He could stand before anybody, and there was no fault that you could find in him. That's the beauty of walking with and for the Lord. Because when you really do that, people don't have anything negative to say about you that's real. They may make stuff up, 
But they're not going to be able to pull your life apart from the actual facts of who you are and how you live. And there's a great deal of peace in that. You can just live the way you live and walk the way you walk and know that God sorts out the different the, the things that are going on in your life just as he's going to do here in Paul's. Daniel put it this way, very much the same thing. And you remember Daniel is, is standing there before King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's in a virtually the same situation. And he's been asked to, to compromise his walk. And he says, I will not eat of the king's meat. The king's delicacies, they're not going to touch my lips. I don't care. I'm going to live my life the way I should live my life. And I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear just because you want to hear it. I'm going to tell you the truth. Daniel chapter 6, verse 5 there it says, and quoting from the New Living, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel or you or me, it says there, will be in connection with his religion. So it's our Jesus that they're looking to find fault with. It's our God that people are looking to find fault with. Because there was nothing that Daniel did. There was nothing that Paul did, and perfectly there's nothing that you will do to bring shame to the Lord. Chapter 26, verse 1 now begins. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you may speak your defense. And so Paul, with a gesture of his hand, started his defense. Paul, again, this tremendous oratory ability, I believe, inspired by the Holy Spirit, begins to speak in his own defense. And he said, I am fortunate, King Agrippa that you were the one hearing my defense against all of these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. For I know that you are an expert on Jewish customs and controversies. And now, please listen to me, the New Living Translation says. He, he says to King Agrippa, he says, I know who you are. I've heard of you. I know that you're basically a fair man. I know that you understand Judaism. And so he's going to go at this apologetics in a way that would speak to the heart of King Agrippa. And actually, the word defense here is apologomai, which actually we get our word apologetics from. He says, I'm going to give you an apologetic defense of the things that have transpired. I'm, I'm going to defend myself. Uh, common oratorical practice today would be to wave one's hand. I, I occasionally do that myself. I don't know where it came from. I may be part Jew back in my history someplace. I'm not sure. But accusing the Jewish leaders, however, uh, that were not there present, Paul would, would have to respond to specific charges. And so he's going to keep it personal. He's going to use his own life. Let God be your defense is the deal here. You speak to what you know, to who you're speaking to. Uh, that's why people get so admired, if you will, in defending things that are, are actually not pertinent at times. Rather than speaking to the heart of the issue, they begin to speak to the peripheral things, and then they lose their voice. Agrippa was an expert on Jewish issues. Uh, he was also an influential government figure in uh, Israel. And, and so these next, this rest of this chapter contains a lot of the same information uh, that we saw in chapter 9. It contains some of the information from chapter 22. Uh, but there are some subtle differences here, and so I think it's important that we uh, also look here at chapter 26, and, and as we do this, the essential message here is that, that Paul's audience now was a new group of people. So even if he repeated part of what he said, it was falling on some new ears. Don't forget that when you're sharing with people. 
I can tell you there are times when it's just like, you know, I don't know how many times I need to tell this story. I don't know how many times I need to share my own personal testimony or what God's done in my life. But the simple fact of the matter is every person that hears it can be motivated, maybe even to saving faith by the things that you would share. So just simply share those things. He begins with a commendation here of Agrippa, and he uses a rather unique word as Marcion. And what that actually means is he was actually happy that he was there. He was blessed to be able to speak to King Agrippa. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not ever blessed if I've got to go in and talk to attorneys or into a courtroom scene or whatever. That, that's not a word that I would normally use. But Paul was because it was an opportunity for God to work in his life and through him. Notice he is the epitome of politeness here. Can I draw your attention to that? Rarely does it do us any good in this type of a setting when you're talking to people in the world to be obnoxious, to be overly dogmatic, uh, to speak in tones that are not conducive to people receiving them. I've listened to so many people. One of the things that drives me nuts about supposed Christian television is the way those people speak to people who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Screaming and yelling at people rarely causes them to come to Jesus. Calling them vile names, like the folks that we see standing on the street corner with signs that have vile things on them telling other people who don't know Jesus that they're going to burn in hell. And they're yelling at them. It, doesn't, it rarely accomplishes anything good. Paul didn't do that. Did Paul actually have the right to get a little bit riled up by now? The answer is yes. He's been under arrest for over two years. He's had to recount the same story now three different times. And you would think that in all of that, you kind of, you know, you might lose your temper. But Paul doesn't. Verse 4, and all the Jews know my way of life. This is Paul speaking from my youth. Now he's going to recount now for the next quite a few verses his own personal experience, his life. You know the great thing about this? Absolutely verifiable. If anyone wanted to know if Paul was telling the truth, they could ask about the Apostle Paul. He was well known. These are things that would have been widely known in Jerusalem. Remember, this is the Paul who was so busy about killing the Christians, destroying those who were on the way that he was traveling that distance to Damascus when he came to Christ. He's pretty well known as a persecutor of the Jews. Or, excuse me, persecutor of the Christians. And he says, All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, a life spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. He said, I wasn't some fringe sect of Judaism. I, I learned from the Rabbi Hillel. I, I was trained under, under Gamaliel. And I'm a Jew of Jews. I know exactly what I'm saying. People in Jerusalem knew that. And they have known for a long time. And if they're willing to testify that I belong to the strictest sect of our religion and lived as a Pharisee. He said, if anybody should know how absolutely despicable it would have been to defile the temple, it would have been me. I was a Pharisee. Pharisees, remember, are the legalist branch of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, the ruling 
class or council of the Jews, divided, in essence, equally in half, Pharisees on one side, Sadducees on the other, Pharisees the legalistic side to which Paul belonged, Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, and they were the liberal side. The, the Pharisees were the ones who said, well, strain your wine because you might have a gnat in it and thereby eat some blood and you'll be condemned. The Sadducees were the guys that figured out how to hire somebody to carry their firewood on the Sabbath day so they weren't working. So you have two sides. Paul was on the strict side. Paul was the guy that would have been worried about the greatest amount of minutia. Do you understand now why he says that? Because what he's being accused of is something very openly blasphemous, that he had defiled the temple area. There's no way in the world a Pharisee would do that. They'd rather kill themselves than drag a Gentile into the temple. And so he goes on. He says, I've lived as a Pharisee. And the beautiful thing of this is because of that, because of the truth of the history of Paul's testimony, the change in Paul's life would have been undeniable. You could have drug up half a jillion people who had known Paul basically from his youth, how he had conducted himself in Jerusalem. This is taken in the region that is not too far from Jerusalem. It's in Caesarea, so it's not that far, 60, 70 miles. And so what Paul's saying is, you can find a bunch of people who will tell you what I used to be like. That is the basis of every one of our testimonies. Amen? It's what you used to be before you met Jesus. In Paul's case, he said, there's all kinds of people who know that. Widely known. He was renowned, as the Pharisees were renowned, for their meticulous knowledge of the Scriptures and the keeping of the law to the letter. That's why Jesus freaked them out so bad. He said, I've come to fulfill the law. They're like, are you kidding? You mean all this temple sacrifice and everything I've done? Doesn't? Yep, that's what I'm saying. doesn't matter. Because in me, I've replaced the law with grace. Didn't detract from one jot or tittle of it. He just simply fulfilled it all. So now everything they were doing didn't have the meaning it used to have. To some degree, becoming useless. But there was an undeniable change. And by the way, this is the longest speech that Paul does in the entire book of Acts, consequently in all of Scripture. So Paul's going to defend himself. Yeah, your conversation might not, might not be as dramatic, but use what God's done in your life as testimony of what God's done in your life. That's not comfortable sometimes, is it? Hey, you know, pouring out what you used to be before you met Jesus to people is not high on the list of most people's, well, you know, I just want to, you know, be embarrassed about what I used to be. But it's one of the most valuable things that God can use in your life. What he's done, what you used to be, how far you've already traveled. Verse 6, and now I'm on trial because I'm looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. So he's saying, because our ancestors were promised to be raised, David said that very very clearly about himself and about the Messiah. You won't leave my, my soul in Sheol. Paul's going, I actually believe that. Remember, the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees don't. He said, I'm looking forward to that promise. That's why the twelve tribes of Israel worship God day and night. And they share the same hope that I have. Yet, O king, they say it is wrong for me to have this hope. You see what he's doing? He's using their own words against them. 
You can't have it both ways. You can't say that you believe in these things, but because I believe in it, it's wrong. Paul said, I was a Pharisee before I was a Christian. I believed in it then. I believe in it now. The only difference is I know who that hope is. And so he's sharing with them from the depths of his experience. They all shared that same hope. That's why that passage in Ephesians that says Jesus first descended before he ascended is so important to the Jewish people. Because that's how Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David all made it to heaven. Before that, they just had the hope of it. They now have the reality of it. Paul believed in that hope that the Messiah would come. Now he believed that the Messiah had come because he'd met him on the road to Damascus. Verse 8 says, Why does it seem so, so incredible to any of you, the New Living says, that God can raise the dead? I love this. Because this is the argument that I often use when people are talking about scientific evidences and those types of things about creation. I said, if your premise is that miracles never happen, then I said, most of what you believe is based on things you can't explain. I said, to me, that's a miracle, isn't it? So you can't have it that your miracles count, but my miracles don't. And so if my miracles happen to include that God created the heavens and the earth by speaking it into existence, and your miracle is you believe that nothing became something and exploded... See, my miracle is just as valid as your miracle. That's the argument Paul's making. You honestly telling me that as a Pharisee, because remember, half of the, the Pharisees, they all believe that God raises the dead. And now they're saying, well, we don't believe in that anymore. You can't have it both ways. Use people's hypocrisy against them. Make them come to terms with the truth that way. And for them, it's incredible. Literally, the word here is actually unbelievable that God could raise the dead. The power of God's the power of God. Miracles are not something that you should shy away from. God does miracles. When people say they don't believe in miracles, they're just plain not being truthful. Because when you actually talk to people apart from the, the Jesus in our relationship with God, when you talk to them about God, almost everybody believes in miracles. There's virtually no one on the planet who doesn't actually believe that miraculous things happen. They just don't want to believe that Jesus Christ had, did the miracle of raising the dead when he was risen. And so they don't like that miracle. So they throw that miracle. Well, you cannot do that. Hold them to it. Say, so what do you mean, no miracles? You believe that fish became frogs, became lizards, turned into some type of vertebrate animal that ultimately turned into a monkey, and that monkey turned into a man. To me, that's pretty miraculous. You believe that 485 million years ago the Cambrian explosion happened and this gigantic proliferation of life occurred and all but one species of life evolved all at once. Isn't it supposed to take millions, if not billions of years, yet every bit of life that we have on earth seems to have had a representation during that period of time instantaneously in one layer of rock? Oh, well, yeah. So it's not okay for me to believe in miracles, but it's okay for you to believe in miracles. Paul's being very crafty here. He's saying, my God does miracles. He sustains the universe, as Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 3 sustains the universe by the mighty power of his command. 
So it's something we can't explain. I can't explain quantum mechanics either, and neither can anybody else. We have some ideas. We can't explain the minute particles that they're now trying to research to try and fill in all the gaps of black or dark matter. We don't know what it does. We don't even know if it exists. Matter of fact, it exists because something's not there. We call that the argument from absence. In other words, we can't see it, but it does something, so it must be there. To me, those are miracles. Use miracles. Verse 9, For I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You see how he's bouncing from, you can't have it this way, you can't tell me that you don't believe in miracles, when in fact you do believe in miracles, and then because the miracle I believe in happens to be Jesus Christ, and I used to be just like you. Matter of fact, I did the same thing. I often use the fact when I'm sharing with people who maybe have a scientific bent to their way of reasoning and thinking, I was exactly like you. I graduated from high school with pretty good grades. I went to go on to medical school. I took my first course in college, evolution, heredity, and society, and one class shifted me towards believing in Darwinistic evolution. I said, I was just like that. But then when I actually did a little bit of research, I found out it was a bunch of hogwash that not only didn't make any sense scientifically, it denied the very truths, the plain truths of God's word, which just happened to be more explainable to me than someone saying that the universe came from nothing or that random chance processes create order. Those things are against basic physics. So all of a sudden I'm saying, you know what, I used to be just like you. Verse 10 authorized by the leading priest, caused many of the believers in Jerusalem to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were to be condemned to death. He said, I used to kill the same people that I am. I remember vehemently on the very first Earth Day, I was sitting in the quad at Grossmont College in La Mesa, California, sitting there with my hippie beads on, my peace sign hanging around my neck, my long hair out to here, Going, those people are just stupid. I don't, how did I ever get wrapped up in Christianity? I remember it. I used to just be exactly like that. All of a sudden, the light goes on. The change happens. The real change happens. Condemned to death. Many times I had them whipped in synagogues, tried to get them to curse Christ. I remember having arguments with people. Ah, Jesus stuff. You know, I used to believe that when I was stupid. I didn't know how stupid I was. I had no idea how intellectualism could, could rob your mind of basic concepts of reasoning. How thinking because a book was fat, it was truth. Anybody else do that? Big book must be a lot of truth. If it weighs a lot, well, that's certainly got a lot of truth in it. I thought you could buy intellectualism by the pound. Just the more books you had, the smarter you must be. Look at somebody with a big life. They've got to be smart. No, they can just be more deceived than other people. More intricately deceived. And so I was violently opposed to them, even when I hounded them in distant cities of foreign lands. So you know the story. They're in Acts 9. He's on his way to Damascus. Wasn't bad enough he'd try to round up and kill everybody near Jerusalem. He's going to travel a few days away and try and kill them up there too. That's how radical 
you can become when the lie gets into your mind and, and takes root. And Paul's admitting that. Saying, I used to believe just like you believe. Verse 12, And on one of these journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. In other words, he was going with the same authority with which he is now accused and condemned to death. The chief priests want him killed. He was going with the same authority to go kill other people. You talk about a transformation. You talk about owning it yourself. Here's a guy who's he's living it, man. He's saying, you know, I used to be just like you, and I used to go do the same things that you're trying to do now, so I understand where you're coming from. I was there. I can identify with somebody who's struggled with alcohol. It's easy for me to identify with that person. I know what that's like. I know how dumb you can become. I know how absolutely ridiculously stupid you can become. And it costs you a lot of money to get that way. And you sit around and say, like, I don't know. Have some of the most ridiculous conversations you've ever had. And you think they're true. So it doesn't bother me to talk to people who have that problem. You know what? I can identify. Let me help you. Because one day you're going to wake up, and one day you're going to realize that what you've been doing gets you nowhere. And the end result, as Scripture says, is death. Paul was using his amazing testimony. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, and I love the way he does this, because again, this is miraculous. It's noon. He's going to say, there was such a bright light that it outshone the sun. Oh, sure. Could I remind you, they didn't have big searchlights. There was no LED lighting system to do that. There, There was nothing that could have happened other than something extraordinary. And I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Blazing around me, the New International Version says, and my companions, and we all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? He's reminding everybody of his own conversion experience. King Agrippa, you know, Paul's doing a pretty good job at storytelling here. I can imagine the king's like, really? That happened to you? I understand the Old Testament Judaic system. I understand the reason for the temple. I understand the sacrifices and what they mean. But this is kind of, you know, you were on that side, now you're over here. Tell me more. The presence of that light was none other than Jesus. C.S. Lewis, commenting on this particular passage, You see, Paul's passion and conviction, his dedication, were headed the wrong way. And so God goaded him to go the right way. Man, don't don't you think that God takes every effort to get you to go the right way? You know, he's just like he's poking you with a a goad was actually a stick, a sharpened stick. used. And if the animal was going the wrong way, if you were on a donkey, you could just, just stick him with that stick. And the harder you would try and go the wrong direction, the more that stick got stuck in you. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, the moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. That's true. Man, the day just unfolds, doesn't it? He says that the first job each morning consists of shoving it all back and listening to that other voice. 
taking the other point of view and letting that other larger and stronger and quieter life come flowing in. You, you see, the world does that. And King Agrippa is cutting a big swath. I mean, this is, as, this is as big as it gets in this region of the world. And Paul's saying, I want you to slow down a little bit. I want you to listen to what I'm saying here, because I used to be on the other side of the coin. I used to be going the other way. And let me tell you from my own personal experience what happened. God speaks through us when we, when we will choose to allow him the privilege to do that. Because that's what it is. It's a privilege that we have to allow God to speak through us. God's always speaking. And he always uses a language that other people can understand. The question is, will you allow him to be used in you, through you? And he says, who are you, sir? I asked. And the Lord replied. Notice how he makes no bones about it. Who was speaking to him on the road to Damascus? It was the Lord. He says, Yahweh Adonai spoke to me. For I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now stand up, for I have appeared to you and appoint you as my servant and my witness. So now he's explaining why he's standing here before King Agrippa. He says, there's a plan for me to be here. I've been appointed to this, for you to tell the world about this experience and about the other times that I will appear to you. And so basically he says, while I was kicking against the goads, God was telling me what I was supposed to do with my life. And part of me being right here, right now with you, King Agrippa, is because that's what Jesus told me I was going to be doing. I'd be used for you. Wasn't telling just about his experience at Damascus, but all the rest of the times. And he's going to get some more of them. As we look at the last two chapters, those are some of the most powerful chapters the book of Acts have with regard to experience in the Apostle Paul's life. Verse 17, and I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. What's happening right now? He's already been, you know, the Jews have tried to kill him. They've plotted to kill him. They said, we'll lie in wait for you. They're still lying in wait. They're following him. They're now chasing him halfway around the known world, in essence, trying to get to him. God said, that's not going to happen. I'm sending them to you to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness, the New International Version says, to the light, from the power of Satan to God. And you, Matt, this is a pretty powerful explanation of the gospel at work in Paul's life. He said, the reason I've been sent to the world is to show people the power of God. That's why I'm speaking to you here right now. Without insulting King Agrippa, that's what he's saying to him. He says, there's a purpose for me being here so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That, Paul's recounting his purpose in life. Forgiveness of sins. Remember, King Agrippa is a Jew. They believed in forgiveness of sins by the sacrifice. That on Yom Kippur... In essence, the offering would be made and the sins would be atoned for. They would be placed upon the scapegoat. The scapegoat would be released into the wilderness. Nevermore for those sins that have been confessed to be dealt with by God. They were put away for a season. But they were never finally dealt with until Jesus came. They were just put away. They were still wandering out there someplace, just heaped on the scapegoat. Paul was talking about his own personal place, in essence, in the world. And then after that, verse 19 says, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. 
He says, King Agrippa, I wasn't disobedient to that heavenly vision, and that's exactly why I'm here today. But I declared to those first in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout the countryside of Judea, also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do deeds consistent with repentance. You remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees as they came down to the River Jordan to be baptized at John's baptism? He said, oh, no, you don't. Uh, you guys look really good. You're nice in those robes you got going on there, your finery and your phylacteries and everything else you got going. You got one on your wrist. You got one in your forehead. You guys look righteous as all get out. But he says there's something you need to do. You need to repent and go do the works of repentance. Make sure that what you are doing, it declares who you are. Doctrine, duty, the whole concept that Paul teaches us in the New Testament books. He says you can't say one thing and do another. You have to make both of those things match. Paul had been obedient to that. He says repent, turn to God. You had to have a change of course. You had to have a change of heart. Those things had not happened in Felix. They had not happened in Festus. And now he's saying you're going to get the message too. Hadn't happened to them yet. Then he goes on, and some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this. And they tried to kill me, but God protected me so that I'm still alive today to tell these facts to everyone. From the least to you, to the greatest, to Caesar. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Dead on, spot on truth. That is exactly what the prophets said would happen. That there would one be one who would come who would be greater than Moses, was what they declared. One who would bear the sins of the world. One who would have the chastisement of our peace placed upon him. One who would be the wonderful, the counselor, the mighty God, the prince of peace. Paul's just saying, I met him on the road to Damascus. The one that the Jewish people are still waiting for. I've already seen him. That Messiah who would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead is a light to the Jews and the Gentiles alike. In other words, he's saying, you know, the things that you believe, I believe. The only difference is, I believe that Messiah has already come. You're still waiting for him. You're still looking for that, that, that man. I'm telling you, Jesus of Nazareth is that guy. He is the Messiah. And suddenly, I love this, Festus shouted in verse 24, Paul, you're insane, the New Living Sands. New Living Translation says he's insane. Too much study has made you crazy. People still think I'm crazy. They'll think you're crazy. They think all Christians are crazy. You mean you're actually looking forward to dying? Yes, I am looking forward to dying. I can't wait to be with Jesus. Here's good. There's a whole lot better. That sounds crazy to somebody who doesn't know Jesus. That sounds insane. You mean you'd rather be in heaven? Yep, I'd rather be in heaven than here on earth. Now I know God's got a plan for me, and I'm not leaving here one second too soon. And I have people that, that God's entrusted to my care. I love my wife. I, you know, I've already made a deal with God. You have to take all of us or none of us. It's just not an option. But God knows what He's doing. And Paul says in verse 25, I'm not crazy. I'm not out of my mind, he says, most excellent Festus. 
But I am speaking a sober truth, for indeed the king knows about these things. In other words, he's now appealing to his Jewish understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. That that scarlet thread of redemption began in Genesis. And it continued right on and goes through until the writing of the end of the book of Revelation. That was God dealing with mankind, taking care of our sin problem. Because you understand these things. For indeed the king knows about these things, and I speak to him freely. For I am certain that none of these things has escaped this notice, his notice. For this was not done in a corner, King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. The question is, are you going to believe? He said, I'm not out of my mind. I have a reasonable faith. The things that I understand from a Jewish perspective, I'm now applying to what I'm living. One of the glories of actually studying the Old Testament prophets is you find out that what happens in the New Testament just validates everything that was said in the Old. The Old Testament concealed, D.L. Moody said, is the New Testament revealed. It's just all of a sudden the light goes on. It isn't something new. It's not something different. It's something completed. It's something that appeared in part now is revealed openly is all that's happened in the New Testament. Jesus simply fulfilled what the Old Testament said would happen with regard to the Messiah in very immensely fine detail. You know what you know what happens when you hit people with that truth? It strikes a nerve because it forces them to deal with their own sin. It forces them to come to terms with eternity. It causes them to look at what they actually believe and don't believe. If they have a so-called belief system and it's not biblical Christianity, it's W-R-O-N-G wrong. It becomes very clear. Because the Old Testament's looking for one Messiah that will end all of the sacrificial system and everything that happened under Judaism. All the New Testament does is says, here I am, it's finished. And it details all those things that were declared by Isaiah and Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi and all of the Old Testament prophets. When you look at what Ezekiel said about the the king who would come, he's here. But the truth can be resisted. And so, verse 29, Paul replied, A short time or long, I pray that God not only for you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. He said, I'm free in Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And he said, the only thing I want for you is that you become as I am, free in Christ, but not bound up in chains, so that you can go tell the rest of the world. Right now, i got a captive audience because you brought me here. But I'd rather be free to do this to all who would listen. Universal need for the change that happens. And so as we wrap this up, verse 31 says, And then the king, the governor, Bernice, and all the others stood and left. And they talked over it and they agreed. This man hasn't done anything worthy of death or imprisonment. So Paul again gives the gospel message to a group of influential people. And so in these three rulers, we find the Felix excuse. I'm too involved. I got too much going on. We find the Festus excuse. I'm too intelligent. 
I'm too smart to believe what you're saying. And then the Agrippa excuse, I'm too important. Those are pretty much the three excuses you hear in the world today. I'm too busy. I'm too smart. I'm too important. When you look at the world, the world is an opportunity for you to use your life, as Paul did his, to tell people about Jesus. These three chapters, that's all he does. And he does it under some tough circumstances. Granted, he was an apostle. But the same power that rested in Paul rests in you. The same Lord that is Lord of Paul is the Lord of you. The same Holy Spirit that speaks words of truth in times of need, same Lord is in you, same Holy Spirit's in you. Through Him you're more than able. Through Him you're more than conquerors. And it's only through Jesus that the world is ever going to know salvation. And I pray that we don't miss those opportunities. King Agrippa said to Festus, he could be set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. What a way to end the chapter. So, well, we could let him go, but he appealed to Caesar, so we'll send him on his way. Isn't that amazing how God brings the gospel message to these three guys? Yes, they give their excuses, but I wonder how many people who were in the room said, you guys said he's innocent. He had the guts to tell you the truth. You said he's innocent. There must be something true to his story. I wonder how many people other than these guys actually did believe. That's the story kind of behind the story. And that's really what's going to happen when Paul starts off on his, on his journey to Rome, which we'll pick up next time. Would you pray with me? Father God, may we have this kind of incredible boldness. Lord, to just simply speak the truth from our perspective. To let you use our testimony, Lord, to reach the lost. And Lord, it is not up to us to try and change hearts. That's your job. Our job is to be faithful to the message. And we pray that you'd help us to do that. Lord, bless us as we leave this place. Use us wherever we go, Lord, for these incredible opportunities, for even opposition to be an opportunity for your divine plan to save mankind to go out. We bless you, Lord, that you've given us each a testimony. Pray that you would use it for your glory. We ask these things in the blessed name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right, family of God. Next week, Paul gets on a ship. Starts off with a storm and then finds a shipwreck. So if you've had a storm in your life, be here next week. If you've had a shipwreck in your life, the week after is for you. <laughs>